0: Welcome to the city. You know, we, if you've been here um, at all in the last year or so, you know we've been going through the the Book of Luke. If you're new here, we've committed as a church to teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. Uh, but we're in Luke at the at the moment. But occasionally, we like to, to take a little bit of a break from Luke. Um, there, there's another book of the Bible called Psalms, and there's a bunch of those, and it's going to take a long time to get through them. And so. From time to time, we take a, a break and we jump into Psalms. and we're, we're up to Psalm chapter 4 today. If you missed last week, go back and, and listen to it. Jacob did an awesome job talking about Psalm 3 and just David uh, crying out to God in desperation. He was being pursued by his his son who wanted to kill him. I mean, he was in a little bit of a pickle. And he runs to God and he prays these bold prayers. And we learn that we can cry out to God and he'll come through to us. He'll He'll come through for us. He'll give us peace. We learn that he'll fight our battles for us. When we pray, when we pray things happen in the spiritual realm and, and God has the power to change things in our lives in the physical realm. If we give our burdens to him and if we you know he he commands us don't worry about anything just just pray about everything. And the promises that his peace will guard our hearts and minds as we live in Christ Jesus. And so today we take another step into Psalms chapter 4. And if you, you can go ahead and turn there if you want, it'll be on the screen in a minute if you don't. But the first thing you see when you look at Psalm 4 is, is a little description here. It says, for the choir director. Um, now, I don't know if you were a choir person or not. I wasn't in choir in school. I was in band. I was a band nerd and I was, I'm very proud of that. I played the trumpet. We are the coolest of the band nerds. Everybody knows that. Um, but I wasn't in choir until at the church I grew up in, in Leveland, Texas, it was called uh, First Assembly of God. And I was in the choir there as like a 13, 14 year old, the adult choir. And we had the widest black gospel choir on the face of the earth. Um, <laughs> Just mainly a bunch of older white people that sang nothing but black gospel music. It was amazing. We did the Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir, Kirk Franklin stuff. I, I loved it. And then as I got into ministry, I was at a, serving in a church in San Antonio. I directed a choir. That, that might surprise some of you. Not only did I direct the choir, but I did it wearing a, a suit and tie every Sunday. I had no facial hair, I had no tattoos, it was a different era, okay? I was, I was a little bit of a different person, but I, I directed a choir, like I directed a choir, you know what I'm saying? And I had trouble sometimes getting people into the choir, and so, you know, our, our numbers were kind of down, we weren't uh, that good, and uh, so I talked, I talked to my beautiful wife, Jennifer, into being in the choir, and she did it, because she loves me. And I tell people that, and they say, oh, Jennifer sings, and I usually say, no, she does not. Uh, she does not sing. <laughs> but sometimes a warm body is better than nothing, you know? Anyway, Psalm chapter 4. Turn there if you want. Uh, if you actually go ahead and stand. We're going to stand for the reading of Scripture. And Levi is going to come read our, our Scripture for us today. Levi.
1: Well, I'm Levi. I'm an eighth grader, uh, Cooper Middle, and I'm going to read you all Psalm 4. So here we go. Answer me me when I call to you. O God who declares me innocent, free me from my troubles. Have mercy on me and hear my prayer. How long will you ruin my reputation? How long will you make my groundless accusations? How long will you continue your lies? Interlude. You can be sure of this. The Lord will set apart the godly for himself. The Lord will answer when I call to him. Don't sin by letting anger control you. Think about it overnight and remain silent. Interlude. Offer sacrifices in the right spirit and trust the Lord. Many people say, Who will show us better uh, times? Let your face smile on us, Lord. You have given many great joy than those who show abundant harvest of grain and new wine. In peace, I will lie down and sleep, for you alone, O oh Lord, will keep me, keep me safe. Thank you, Levi. You can have a seat. So Psalm 4,
0: so this is um, most likely, I mean there's some uncertainty, but most likely this is written by, by David uh, for a lot of different reasons, one of, one of which is it seems to be closely related to Psalm 3, just in the theme and kind of the language used. Um, some some uh, think it was someone else, they think they're unsure. Some translations say a Psalm of David, maybe yours does either way i'm going to ref- i'm going to say david right because to say the psalmist over and over and over will be uh, very annoying i'm going to i'm going to spare you that but this is another lament like like last week david is is lamenting a lament is a passionate expression of grief or sorrow i mean you can hear it in the language like his heart is broken over something but he doesn't stay there he eventually kind of makes turns this corner and expresses Just this faith and trust in God, that God is with them in these circumstances. Uh, The the context of chapter four is different though than chapter three. Chapter three, we learned David was running for his life. This is a little bit different situation. Um, There's some kind of natural disaster that has has happened. Maybe it's a drought or something, they're in some kind of famine. Uh, But agriculturally, the people are suffering. They're not making their crops. And this kind of thing happened a lot in ancient Israel. And when it did, it tended for some people to, to, to raise questions about God, raise questions about Yahweh and is he capable or not of providing for his people. And sometimes for some people, that meant that they, they turned from God. They began to doubt. They turned from God and pursued other things. They, in this particular case, they ran into the arms of, of foreign gods, gods of fertility, false gods, and David's upset about it. So this little chapter here is divided into three different segments, um, and it's divided by the word interlude, or some, some translations say selah. Uh, the three sections are kind of a thematic thing. First, you have him crying out to God and kind of critiquing the people. Uh, then he gives some people, those people some, some wise advice in verses 3 through 5. And then finally, he kind of expresses this confidence in God. So, so we're going to kind of take those sections and, and just break them out and dive deep into it. And then I've got some questions for you at the end. And I'm just warning you, it's not going to be easy. These are going to be convicting A convicting few moments here as we really take a look at ourselves. And I'm encouraging you today, uh, be open to it. And you can go ahead and get your heart kind of in a posture today, like, God, speak to me. God, I'm open to what you want to say, even if it hurts my feelings, even if it's convicting to me. Because I know it has been uh, for me over these last few days. So let's go. Uh, Verse 1. He says, first of all, answer me when I call to you. Oh, God, who declares me innocent, free me from my troubles, have mercy on me and hear my, my prayer. I mean, you have to notice these first few words. Uh, this is a man talking to God, saying, answer me when I call to you. Answer me. Like what we saw in chapter three, this is a very bold prayer. This is something David does a lot. This, this isn't a guy that just knows a little bit about God or knows about him in some kind of distant and detached way. This is someone who knows God. This is very intimate and aggressive language between, two, between God and, and David. They, they have this, this, this different kind of relationship. David is apparently comfortable talking to God this way. Answer me when I call you. Hear my prayer. This imperative here, it's, it's, it's here. The word is "sema." it's regularly seen as a call to attention, like, hey, I got your attention, didn't I? That's what he's doing here. He's, like, he's saying, listen to me. May I have your attention, please? I, I picture a, a kid maybe trying, to, if you're a parent, you know this, a kid trying to get your attention. If you're doing something and they're like, mom, 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 whatever. Maybe they, they, they tap you incessantly until you finally say what. Or you maybe picture a parent holding a child and the child maybe grab the parents' face and, and turn their face towards him. This is kind of what I, I sense David is doing. He's saying, listen, I, I need your attention. Listen to me. You might be thinking, man, that's a, that's a bold move for David to talk to God that way. But this, this is how distressed David is. I mean, he, he's in distress. He set aside the, the niceties and the formalities. And he's saying, I need some help here. Think about it this way, if you're, if you're drowning, you're not going to be worried about being polite, asking for help, right? I mean, I don't care if it were the Pope there, you would be like, hey, help me. I'm drowning. I'm not sure why you'd be swimming with the Pope or why you'd expect him to be the one to help, but you get what I'm saying. Like the, the, the formalities go out the window because you're so desperate. It's a life and death situation. He's saying, answer me when I call to you. Save us from disaster, answer me, God who declares me innocent. He's saying God has declared him innocent. This, this phrase is more literally translated, oh God of my righteousness. It, it assumes God is in this place of judge where he alone is the one who, who judges David. It's not anyone else. He assesses the situation. He has said that David is innocent. God, you alone are the judge. And he says, free me from my troubles. Have, have mercy on me and hear my prayer. Free me, have mercy, hear me. These, these three verbs are, are imperatives. Like there, there's so much, just in the original text here, it doesn't quite translate in, into our English, but there's, there's just so much urgency in these three statements. Answer me, be gracious to me, hear my prayer. God free me from my troubles. God, give me, I need some relief from this distress. I mean, he, he's being closed in upon. He's desperate for, for, for more room, right? He's just being crushed from all sides. and he, he's saying, "I need some relief in my life. Have you ever felt that way? You feel like you're being attacked from all sides. There's just no end. There's no end. It's been going on for a while. And you can see this in his language in verse 2. He says, how long will you people ruin my reputation? Like how long is this going to go on? How long will you make groundless accusations? How long will you continue your lies? I love the way he says, you people. How long will you people ruin my reputation? Some people say, uh, some people, some translations say, you sons of men. In other words, not belonging to God. A little background here. David's not just addressing anyone. He's addressing a specific group of people. He's targeting these influential members of of their society, these people that were in the know. And he's accusing them of misleading the regular folks, the people of God. He's he's accusing them of, of encouraging them to turn away from God and turn towards these false gods. This is what David is upset about. I know it reads a little different today, but he's he's talking about God's reputation. He's not worried about them saying things about himself that aren't true. He's upset because they have offended the glory of God. They sought solutions to their problems by turning to false gods. And, And what we tend to do when we hear something like that is, man, I would never do that. Oh, really? You mean you don't try to solve your problems by any other way under the sun other than turning to God. You don't try to solve your problems in your your own strength. You don't turn to things in your life to kind of dull that pain like alcohol or drugs or sex or addictions or even even food. I mean, what is it you turn to when the pressure is turned up, when the stress is off the charts? Because if, if it's not prayer and it's not turning to the God of the universe, you're worshiping a false god. You're turning to an idol and David is saying to them, and I think saying to us, what are you doing? You've gone off track. You're, you're looking for what you need in all the wrong places. And so David gives them some advice. He gives them some, some wise counsel in verse three. He says, you can be sure of this, the Lord set apart the godly for himself. The Lord will answer when I call to him. Be sure of this. This, this word in Hebrew is to know, but it's, it's not just this head knowledge of, of knowing, it's an experiential knowing. He's saying, remember who God is and, and remember the relationship he has with his people, especially those that have chosen to follow him. See, see at this point, Israel has been in this covenant, this Abrahamic covenant with, with God for centuries. And he's saying, man, you, you should know better. You know, I, I knew my wife when we got married. I know you're relieved to hear that, but we knew each other when we got married, but we'd been dating for five years, right? So when I, when I first met her, I knew of her. And over those five years, I grew to love her. And then we, we got married and we just knew each other in a, in a different way. But today we've been married for almost 23 years. So I know her in a different kind of way now, why? Because we've had experiences that have shaped us and molded us together, refined us. Like we've gone through things that have kind of fused us together. It, we're something different than we were before. I know her, not just an in intellectual knowledge, but, but, but I, know, I know what she's thinking. I know what she's feeling when, when I just glance at her from across the room, because we've been through things together. That's a different kind of knowing. This is the kind of knowing that David is suggesting, like you should have known, like don't you know him? Don't you remember the stories? I mean, they've read the Torah, the stories of God's faithfulness and his, his righteous anger when people turn their backs on him. They, they know better than we know. They, they know what God is. They know what he does. They know about the slavery in Egypt and the plagues and the Passover where because of Pharaoh's disobedience, the spirit of God took the life of every firstborn son. If the blood of the lamb didn't cover the doorposts. They know about the Red Sea when they cross on dry land and then they watch the Egyptian army get swept away. They know about manna from heaven that sustained the people of God. They know about the fire by night and the cloud during the day that that led them. They know about the water from the rock that quenched their thirst. They know about Mount Sinai and the smoke and the thunder And and Moses going up and meeting with God and coming down with his face glowing from the glory of God. They know about the disobedience of the Israelites as they they made the golden calf and the punishment that followed that. David's like, what are you doing? What are you doing? You're playing with fire. You know better. Something's missing here. Then he goes on. You know, be sure of this, know this, the Lord set apart the godly. This is who David is to God. Not, it's not really who they were. Remember, they're sons of men he's talking to. He's saying, I belong to God. Look, he, he deals with us differently. I'm in a different kind of relationship with God. He's gonna hear me. When I answer him, but but this this term "godly" it doesn't even mean what we're we're thinking of in terms of godly. It's a it's a lot deeper meaning than that. It's talking about someone who fulfills their obligation to a relationship. Every single relationship in your life, whether it's a marriage relationship or family or friends or church members or coworkers, whatever, every relationship carries with it an obligation of loyalty and faithfulness. And this is loyalty and faithfulness to Israel's covenant relationship with God. This is what David's talking about here. They've blown it. They're not being faithful. They've, they've turned their backs on God and his ways and, and they're doing their own thing. And he's telling them, you're, you're on the wrong side and, and things, they're not gonna go well for you. And then in verse four, don't sin by letting your anger control you. Think about it overnight. Remain silent. Offer sacrifices in the right spirit and trust the Lord. Now, this, this particular verse is difficult to interpret. If you read a lot of different commentaries about it, you, there's so many different interpretations. Um, we have to remember here, that this, this is poetry, okay? This is poetry, and poetry... A lot of times it's intentionally multifaceted. It's com- complex. So to try to kind of pigeonhole it into one meaning is, is a dangerous thing, right? So we, we need to kind of consider everything, consider the context and the, the language and what, what's the subject matter that he's talking about here. This phrase, be angry, but don't sin. You know, you, you've heard that one. Don't, don't sin in your anger. To most people, it's talking about being angry. Maybe he's telling the people, hey, don't be mad. Don't sin against me in your anger. Like maybe leave me alone. But, but listen, some translations don't even mention the word anger. They, they talk instead about um, trembling or being troubled. Maybe David's saying here, listen, you're running in the wrong direction. You're running away from God You're without any fear or sense of danger. And he's telling them here, listen, think about this. Go, go lay in your bed. Think about it overnight. It's like go to your room and think about what you've done. You know, like you, you should be afraid in this moment. Like where's your, your fear of the Lord? You should be trembling in your bed. And then he says to make the right sacrifice. Make the right, remember the, the sacrificial system in those days where you had to make atonement for your sin and you had, there was animals that had to be, be killed for, for your sin. He's saying make the right kind of sacrifice. He, he's telling them it's, it's not just all about the, the outward show and checking all the boxes. He's telling them that God looks at their hearts. He's after their, their hearts. This reminded me of, of another psalm of David, Psalm 51. He says to God, you do not desire a sacrifice or I would offer one. You don't want a burn offering. The sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart. Oh God. That's what God is after. He, he's after a broken spirit. He's telling these people, your heart should break for what you did. God's after your heart, trust in him. It's not enough to make these ritualistic sacrifices to God to prove somehow that you're in this right relationship with him. He sees past all of that. He sees down to your heart, to your motivation. They didn't hold up their end of the covenant. He's he's literally telling them repent and return to God. He wants your heart and you haven't given it to him. You have to take action to to repair this this broken relationship. And then this this last section, he starts talking about his confidence in God. He he says, many people say, who will show us better times? Let your face smile on us, Lord. You have given me greater joy than those who have abundant harvests, harvests of grain and new wine. In peace, I will lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, will keep me safe. See, these people, they're, they're confused. They're asking, who will show us better times? In other words, what's in it for me? God's not coming through for me, so I'm gonna turn somewhere else see David's digging a little deeper here to the core of their problem see they they think their relationship with God is about what they can get out of it what's in it for me oh my goodness if, if this isn't us I don't know what is we think of our relationship with God in terms of how much he's blessing us or how much pain he's allowing us to go through We've talked a lot in recent weeks just about our our me first mentality and this kind of me centered faith and our consumeristic attitude when it comes to Christianity and church. And God was sick of it then and he's sick of it now. I'm going to circle back to this in just a minute. But David turns turns back to the Lord and he says, let your face smile on us. See, this is the solution to the problem in David's mind. God, we just need your face to shine on us. See, some translations make reference to the light of God's face shining on us. It's a beautiful picture. See, to see God's face, for his face to shine on you, that's talking about God's presence. Like, to be in the light of the, the face of God, for his face to shine upon you, that's being in the presence of God. And when he hides his face or he removes his presence, that's never a good thing. See, without the presence of God, we're left to our own pitiful devices and trying to solve our own problems, doing things our own way. And hopefully the result of that is that we, realize how desperately we need him and we turn back to him and we cry out for help but when God's face shines on us his presence is with us and we experience the 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 benefit of his presence to us that's that's where we were designed to live in the presence of God everything works better there we experience Just the joy and the the peace and the the love, despite our circumstances, we experience those things because we're we're with him. Have you ever been um, just suddenly like just super aware of God's presence around you? Like maybe it was in a worship service, during the music or something, maybe it was while you were praying sometime, maybe it was just you hanging out at the house and you just had this overwhelming sense of God's presence, like this, this over overwhelming, like your flesh can't handle it, sense of love and grace and warmth and even somehow com- combined with humility and, and conviction. And it's like you're, you're suddenly aware of your own sin before God, but somehow you know that, He's made it okay because he paid for it, because he loves you that much. And it's, it's all rolled into this, this one breathtaking experience when he chooses to, to just give us a little bit more of himself. Have you ever had an experience like that? I've, I've had some of those experiences, just, just that overwhelming joy and fulfillment and peace of those moments. I mean, there's, there's nothing like it. That's the presence of God. And that, that presence of his spirit, you know, we have, we have the Holy Spirit in us, of course, but there's, there's certain times where he's just, his presence is just different. And that kind of thing is available to us each and every single day. This is what David is asking for. This is, this is the, the, the remedy to the darkness that he's experiencing. God, let your face shine on us. Give us that that peace that surpasses all understanding, like, like Jacob talked about last week. And the result is, remember, this, this, is, this is one one prayer. Like his, it's not like God snapped his fingers and the crops all grew. Like he's still in this place of despair, but something changes in him where, where he's crying out to God. He's asking for the presence of God. And it's almost like God answered his prayer. Because He says, you've filled my heart with greater joy. God's done something in him that changed his perspective. He says, He has more satisfaction just being in the presence of God than than if he had all the grain or all the wine that he could manage. What he's saying here, it's not all about the the stuff. Uh, It's not just, your blessing isn't just about the wine and the grain or whatever, things going well for me. He's saying the reward here is God himself, his presence, he's saying is all I need. That's it. That's all. I just want you. I, I don't want what you can give me. I don't want whatever blessings people think they need from God. God, I want your presence in my life. Despite the circumstances, that gives me everything that I need. And so he says, because of this, I can lay down and sleep in peace. Oh, man, that sounds good, doesn't it? I mean, who doesn't need more peace in their life? Despite all of this calamity and all of these problems and all of the, you know, his hearts and all this anguish, he's like, I've got the the presence of God. I can lay down. I can sleep in peace. He's so confident in God. He sleeps. This is the peace that surpasses all understanding. Now, in contrast, remember what he told the people to do. He told them to go lay in your beds and tremble. Think about what you've done. Contemplate, <laughs> contemplate your decisions and fear and tremble before the Lord. But David, he's in God's presence. I mean, I mean, the two groups couldn't be further apart. Those are different kinds of relationships with God. And then he says, For you alone, O Lord, keep me safe. See, he can can relax because God alone is the the source of his security. Like he he has nothing else to fear. He can sleep in peace because he knows God's got him. He doesn't know what tomorrow holds, it doesn't matter. God's with him. Yahweh is the true source of safety and, and shalom, peace. Can't get it anywhere else. Now, question, do you belong to God? This is kind of a a multifaceted question here. I think first of all, it's a question of eternal security. Do you belong to God? like like are you a follower of Jesus are you a son of God a daughter of God or are you a son of man daughter of man which which camp are you in because the only thing that determines that is what have you done with Jesus do you have that relationship with God, that, that knowing relationship, that's not just, oh, yeah, I know about God. Yeah, I believe, I believe that Jesus, you know, is the son of God. Or do you have an experiential knowledge where you've placed your life in God's hands? You have a, a relationship with him. See, that's the first thing we have to get. This is, this is not a question you can miss. You have to get this one right. Like, what, are you, what have you done with Jesus? Like, have you turned your life over to him? Because there's no amount of, of doing all the good things, like the, the, they talked about the sacrifices earlier, there's no amount of religious ritual that's gonna get you there. Those things don't equal a relationship with God because we have sin in our life and, and God is, is a holy and righteous God. We have a problem there. We can't, can't have a relationship with him until we take care of our sin problem. Jesus died for you. He lived that perfect life that you're incapable of living. And then he gave himself up as a sacrifice for your sin. He paid your fine. And now you have an opportunity because, again, of what Jesus did to start a relationship with him, to have a right relationship with God. It's it's about a turning from your sin, turning towards God, a repentance. Like, God, I know I'm a sinner. I know I can't have a relationship on my own with you. Jesus, do something in me. Forgive me of my sins. You turn your heart towards him. God, let Let the light of your face shine on me. Have you done that? If you haven't, you can can do it today. You can make that decision to follow Jesus. And you can know that you, you belong to him. Scripture says that you're no longer an orphan. You're your adopted son or daughter. The God, the creator of the universe. You're in his family. you gotta belong to him. But see, I would ask the same question to the believers. Do you belong to God? As not not a sense of salvation or your eternal security, but do you belong to him? See, belonging to God changes everything. It changes your values, your priorities, your, your lifestyle, your choices. It changes your heart. See, like David, when, when, when you belong to him, what you seek in life isn't the things God can do for you or give you. It's him. It's his presence in your life. There's a book that was originally published in 1692 The Practice of the Presence of God. It's a collection of teachings from a friar named Brother Lawrence, and those teachings were compiled and published. One of the commentaries I was reading this week from uh, Gerald Wilson, he said this of Psalm 4. He said, this psalm is actually a call to practicing the presence of God. When Brother Lawrence wrote this small book with that title over a century ago, it offered... The shockingly simple insight that rather ordinary persons could experience God as present in the midst of ordinary activities of their lives. The key to experiencing God is not withdrawal from ordinary life to the extraordinary life of prayer, meditation, and fasting offered by the monastery or convent. Rather, listen to this part, Brother Lawrence suggested the key was to constantly place one's mind and hearts upon God in the midst of the ordinary. And so to transform one's common duties and activities into uncommon moments of prayer and communion with God, knowing God then becomes an abiding conversation with the God who is always present and awaits only our acknowledgement of that presence through heartfelt communication with him. Did you you catch that? God's presence is always with us. He's looking for us to acknowledge it and to step into it and have a conversation with him. That this is what living in the presence of God looks like. It's not being some kind of holy person that's you know floats around just waiting for heaven. It's about living your normal life and just inviting God into it. You've heard it said this way: inviting God super into your natural, where the presence of God goes with you everywhere you go. That that's life. Changing, guys, that'll change everything about the way you think about things, the way you react to things. It changes your relationships. Doesn't that sound amazing? Because it is. See, see, this is the life that Jesus died to give us, not the deluded garbage we've turned it into. So many stop short of this, that they go their whole lives just never knowing how great God is and how fulfilling and rich their lives with him can be. No, no, it's, a, it's about rules. It's about doing this and not that. It's about getting, yeah, you know, I gotta go to church so I'll feel better about myself. That, that's, you're, you're missing it. There's so much more of him to be had. And that leads me to my next question. Are you satisfied? Are you satisfied? Are you you satisfied with your relationship with God? Are you satisfied with what you've experienced of him, what you know of him? Do you have all you want or need from him? Are you happy with just this cursory knowledge of the things of God and what whatever tiny minuscule things you've witnessed or experienced of him or do you want more? See, David wanted more. God said of David, it's a man after my own heart. Can he say that of you? I'm not sure he could say that of me most of my life. I'm a man after the stuff I want. I'm a man after my own ambition, having a comfortable life. Man, I wanna wanna be after him. See, here's the problem. Back to this pragmatic faith we were talking about, the the problem with with people, these people David were talking to when they were chasing after the wrong things and they were asking God, what's in it for me? You remember that part? This is a pragmatic, me-centered faith when we're just about intellectual knowledge and and just trying to work things out for ourselves, We start equating God's presence in our lives with whatever benefits us. Oh, God wants me to be healthy and wealthy and blessed. I wanna be blessed, so I'm gonna do the things that God wants me to do. And then what the result of that is, even our own good deeds are just an extension of our selfishness. We're, We're doing something to get something. What's in it for me? The result is when we experience pain or trouble, just remember when we talked about feeling pressed in all sides, like you're just just going through it with that kind of faith and your life kind of gets in a rut, your faith gets dull, gets worn out. We start thinking maybe God is distant from us, removed from us and we say, yeah, yeah, I, I tried that and it didn't work for me we turn to other things. As if everything revolves around our own experience and our truth and what we think is best for us. See, when we start searching for what does work for us, we start searching for things that work and to make us happy, we're turning to false gods. And we seek a lie, we chase it down, we try to to fight off that, that drought and that famine in our life by chasing other things, filling that void in our lives with everything else under the sun. We talked about alcohol or sex or addictions, and you might be like, come on, that's not me. Well, what about food or TV or a relationship with your spouse or or your kids? And there are a million activities and sports or whatever, even, even religion. We, we try to fill that void with everything else, chasing something. And we're running from the one that created us, that loves us, that has a plan for us, that has the answer to every question you could ever ask. Can I tell you a hard truth? You're not the center of the universe. God doesn't owe you anything. Everything doesn't exist for your pleasure. God certainly doesn't. In fact, did you know God doesn't really even care about your comfort? You don't hear that in church very often. God's not concerned with your comfort. He wants your heart and he'll put us in positions sometimes to, to make us extremely uncomfortable or he'll let us put ourselves in positions that make us extremely uncomfortable so that we'll look to him. He doesn't care about your comfort. I'm pretty sure the martyrs that died defending the gospel weren't comfortable as they were tortured and beaten, crucified, beheaded, boiled alive, skinned alive, burned alive. That's not comfort. But you read their writings, and men, they knew God. And they had everything they could ever want. They had the peace of God, the joy. God is saying to us today listen, listen to me when I talk to you. Listen. You're missing it. I have such a rich life of love and grace and peace and joy and just fulfillment in me. A never-ending spring, a well that doesn't run dry. And here you settle and chase after things that only hurt you, that only leave you empty. Don't you know it breaks his heart to see us falling on our face over and over and over again when he has everything that we need. It's like the prodigal son that instead of enjoying the, the riches of his father's kingdom was rolling around with pigs. He's saying, what are you doing? Like, turn to me, belong to me. Let my face shine upon you. But see, we can't, we can't get it twisted. We see his blessing is the stuff, the financial blessing, whatever. No, 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 no. The blessing is him. It's his presence in our lives. Those sections of Psalm I was talking about were broken by the word interlude. Most translations use the, the term Selah. Selah. Selah means, it's a musical term that means to pause, to get quiet, to reflect, to contemplate. It's kind of what David was suggesting that. These influencers, influencers do like, like go lay in your bed and be quiet. Think about things. We don't like quiet. <laughs> I don't like quiet because it's, it's uncomfortable. We're afraid of it. Maybe it's because we think things are gonna kind of float to the surface that we wanna keep hidden. Distract ourselves. I think David would say to us, take a moment, evaluate your life, tremble before the infinitely holy and righteous God that you say you serve. I think today we need a, a sailor. We need to pause, hit the pause button and just listen. In fact, I wanna ask you if you would just close your eyes for a minute and try to get um, as much as you can in a room full of people try to get alone with God and just take a breath. Just block out distractions and, and listen in the silence. Let the voice of your heavenly father come through, don't drown it out. Ask him what he's speaking to you. Ask him if you're you're settling for something less. Ask him if you really do do have the right intentions. Ask him if he has your hearts. desperate for him. See, we need to pray bold prayers like, like David prayed. I mean, be honest with God. He already knows. He has everything you'll ever need. What is he asking of you? far from him? Are you chasing other things? Has your fire for him gone out? Turn your heart to him. Cry out to God. Hear me when I pray to you. God, let your face shine upon me. Help us to, to trust in you with all of our hearts. We don't wanna lean on our own understanding. It's not about us. God, help us to, to seek your will in everything that we do, not, not our own way, not what we think is best, not what we think we want out of life. God, help us to seek you, and we know that you've promised you'll show us the way. God, we don't want to be impressed with our own wisdom. Instead, God, give us a fear of the Lord in our lives that, that we would turn away from evil. God, we, do, we, we don't reject your discipline in this moment. We don't want to be upset with you for correcting us because we know that you correct the ones that you love just as a father corrects a child in whom he delights. So we crawl up in your lap, God. We turn your face towards us and we say, hear me. God, restore to us the the joy of our salvation and teach us, God, how how to take your presence with us in our everyday, normal lives. We want you. Not what you can do for us. Not what you can give us. God, we want.